My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, after a little bit of trouble uh, getting together and fixing the technical difficulties, we have a very special guest. He was an aviator. He bought a company, got rid of that company, bought another company, and then bought a hotel. It'll all come together as we tell the story, but it's an amazing one. In the studio tonight, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Brian Bean. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well, DJ, and thanks for having me tonight. Yeah. So what was so interesting about your story, I, I think I hooked up with you on LinkedIn after you had um, shown some stuff about the whiskey company that you are um, really kind of going mass market with now. Uh, but then as I started looking into your past, I'm like, wow, th this guy has gone down so many different paths that don't seem to kind of connect together, but they do. And it made me kind of start looking into you even more. And I see that you were a special operations aviation. You were a senior trainer at JRTC. You were a helicopter uh, company commander. You worked in the Middle East, the Baltics, the Southern Air, uh, uh, excuse me, Southcom areas of responsibility. You were all over the place, got done with that career, went over, started another one, worked with a bunch of more countries, and then you kind of settled down and uh, are living kind of the quiet life now, jumping back and forth between here and Ireland. So let's just talk about one, what got you into this was your family military. What pushed you down this path into aviation? Yeah, well, um, I, I ask myself that question sometimes, but uh, my family wasn't military. My, my dad did uh, basic training and that was about it. And um my brother joined ROTC and that kind of convinced me to, to do that during the, uh, the Reagan buildup in the early eighties and was looking for a job after college, uh, struggled with math in school. So that, that, uh, pushed me into a creative writing degree because my ROTC instructor said, uh, they'd still give me a commission with that. Um, so, uh, I was very lucky then to uh, have a mentor who was an army aviator and joined the aviation branch when it first stood up. So I was in the second ever, ROTC, or I'm sorry, second ever officer basic course that Army Aviation had at Fort Rucker, Alabama. So it was a fledgling branch at the time, and um, I got into it pretty early. Um, from there, my first assignment at Fort Ord in the 7th Infantry Division was when they were being certified as a light division, uh, trying to you know, rival what the 82nd was doing at the time. Uh, so as a young guy, that was a pretty good experience, right? I was still mentored by a bunch of Vietnam vets. Um, and we actually had a, a job. We, you know, we were training for real world deployments, deployed to Panama, uh, deployed uh, to Hondo, um, when a lot of the Army wasn't doing that, right? A lot of the Army was right. sitting around training for JRTC or NTC or things like that. So uh, kind of made me realize that I liked the Army. I, I wasn't bad at it. Uh, I like leadership. I like challenges. Certainly like flying. Um, so that's what pushed me into it. That's what started me in the career path. And when the army went through various rifts at the time, uh, those were the kind of factors that kept me in. Well, 
two questions pop up in mine right off the bat. One, you say you're not very good at math, yet <laughs> flying the million-dollar aircraft that you're flying, I would have to think involve a little bit of math or a, a, at least a tiny bit of math. So let's talk about that going over into aviation. And then number two, with creative writing, that had to pay off for you at points in your career, especially being a commander, making sure that – things were written up correctly, presented correctly. But let's talk about the math first, because that really blows my mind that you say I wasn't that great at it. But aviation, I would think, involves a ton of it. It does, uh, but it's it's uh, it's dumbed down. I mean, we put a monkey in space, right? So I can certainly fly <laughs> helicopters. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, in college, the, I, I knew I was sunk on math when there was letters, numbers, and Greek figures in the same sentence. I yeah. said, well, I don't know what the hell this is all about. I didn't have to do that in a helicopter. My, one of my great friends and first instructor pilot in special ops always laughs that uh, I can tell you Mr. Wilson's dog's name on Dennis the Menace, but I don't know how much fuel was in my gas tank. You know, I, I wasn't the math guy, but I surrounded myself by some pretty uh, incredible instructor pilots and aviators, some of which you've had on your podcast. Um, so I, I managed to struggle through the math and it, and it worked out okay. Uh, and luckily in Little Birds, which is what I flew most of my career, they're pretty small numbers. You know, you're not going far uh, carrying many guys. Um, and then on the writing thing, yeah, the, you know, getting a creative writing degree or writing is, uh, you wouldn't think that'd be a great thing uh, for the military and then certainly for business life, but it, it has been. Um, I did a lot of writing in the military. Um, I, most recently, I, I was called to mind that, you know, the Gothic Serpent guys, deservedly so, are getting the upgrades and awards. Uh, for what, what happened over there in uh, 93. I was new to the unit then. Um, and so when the guys came back, I was one of the guys helping to write the awards up. And there was some pretty bad writing, you know, and I imagine across the fleet, uh, we were rushing to get some awards done. And I'm glad to see the military and leadership is looking past some of our bad writing to, to what really happened that day, giving those guys what they deserve. But, you know, as a leader, you're, you're writing. And if you're writing poorly, guys are not getting promoted. Guys are not getting awards that they deserve. Uh, Mexican letters aren't what they should be and, and all those kinds of things. So writing was very important. And I'm glad I got a good foundation of that in college. So let's talk a, a little bit about the, the little bird, because to me, I think it's the coolest aircraft that we've ever had in, in the too. fleet. Um, and they're, they're talking about possibly phasing it out. I'm going with something else. But it seems to have been everywhere. And, and as you mentioned on the podcast before, you know, we've talked to Gravy Coker and stuff like that. And he's a big AH guy and he uh, he loves it. We've had a, a couple other guys that flew Chinooks and stuff. But I've always really enjoyed the uh, the little birds. I've never ridden on a little bird. Uh, I've ridden on Blackhawks, Lakotas, Chinooks, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they've always seemed they, they kind of have a, uh, aura around them. Like they're, they're kind of, uh, kind of the rock stars of the, of the helicopter groups. Um, what got you pushed over into them? Why didn't you pick a larger frame or, um, yeah. And again, you know, uh, fortune favors the stupid sometimes, right? <laughs> I was, uh, I was a Cobra and 58 guy in a conventional army. And when I tried out for the 160th, they weren't doing a lot of conversions of guys from uh, aircraft to say into the Blackhawk or the Chinook. So Little Birds was the, the natural path for me. Um, I thought I'd be a gun guy, having been a Cobra uh, attack company commander. 
Um, it didn't work out that way, which was fine. Um, both have a, a, a niche mission um, and are, are is a spectacular community, very small community of guys. Um, very narrow mission set, but, uh, but an important one that I think will be difficult uh, to find a replacement aircraft for. The mission won't go away, but to, uh, certainly finding the right aircraft that can do what only it can do um, is going to be a challenge, I think. I think so too. And, and I've seen that army aviation is kind of moving over, uh, to kind of midsize aircraft. Uh, like I said, like the Lakota where you're carrying like a crew of eight and stuff, but it just doesn't seem that it will have the, uh, insertion or extractions abilities that, that these, these little birds do, um, you know, being able to slip in, slip out. And then not only that, but like you were talking, you know, there's two different kinds of little birds just the functionality of it is is a uh, a big thing to to put away that the military is possibly uh, shelving. Yeah, and you know, I think as sure uh, Greg Coker and and if they're being honest, the Chinook and Blackhawk guys would tell you it's a healthy spirited competition, a rivalry among friends. You know, who's more important on the team, the wide receiver, or the tight end, right? You know, that kind of argument. Um, but it, it's a niche mission, and you don't. You wouldn't take a little bird to put 11 guys in somewhere or to the top of a mountain. You know, we could barely carry a verbal threat to the top of most mountains. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, back to Somalia and certainly a lot since then, when there's a wounded guy in an intersection that he needs to be taken out, there's only one aircraft that's going to do that. And that's right now the little bird. Again, they've got to find something else that can do it. Um, it takes a special way of flying it. I think it's the most seated the pants aircraft in the inventory. Um, and, and it's really designed for the urban environment more than anything else. Um, and I think no matter what threat we face, and again, I'm not in any way speaking for the department or the unit or anything, I've been away for a long time, but at the end of the day, people live in population centers and we're going to be in urban environments and rooftops are messy and intersections are messy. And you're going to have to have very skilled aviators flying specifically designed aircraft to take just a few exceptionally skilled shooters. Uh, to that spot, to the X. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And I'm sure they'll, they'll figure it out and they'll find the right technology. But, you know, we've only evolved since Vietnam. We haven't, uh, there hasn't been a revolution in flight since the Huey, you know. Um, so I, I don't know what they're going to do. I, I don't think it's going away fast, that's for sure. Well, the interesting part about your career to me was that you, uh, of course, started Big Army, uh, but you were uh, an attack pilot in big army, uh, a company commander. Then you changed over into the one sixtieth. I want to talk to you about the differences between big army air and this small, very elite unit of air. Well, yeah, you know, it's everything it's advertised to be. And and it's kind of the Marvel comic books thing to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, the one sixtieth, the thing that makes the one sixtieth, the one sixtieth, is the soft truth that humans are more important than hardware and we, they, get to select their humans. Uh, there's an assessment process. You have to apply. You have to volunteer. We pick the best of the best. That's not to say that there aren't great guys who never serve in the 160th. There are. Their career paths might not give them the opportunity. They may not want to, um, but we don't take any slackers in, and that's the difference. You know, guys in the regular army are getting direct assignments and, and you make the best out of it and there are great army leaders that do that. So you start with 100% volunteers, the best of the best, 
about a year of training to, to get into the unit proper, you know, through the green platoon uh, selection process and, and uh, the training and all the environmentals. And then, you know, I had a guy a couple of classes ahead of me uh, at the time with W4 who had been on the Army Precision Helicopter Team. And now he's a little bird guy and he's one of 15 new guys and he's running the fridge fund, you know, and because it takes time, uh, not as a hazing thing, but it's, you know, the, we're only going to let the best guys across platforms, only the best guys get to interface with the most elite special ops warriors that we have. They only, the best guys get to do the planning, only the best guys get to do the stick wiggling and you get trained and you evolve to be one of those guys. And while you're doing that, you're deploying and you're uh, back when I was in, you know, the, mostly the 90s, uh, early 2000s, pre-GWAT, pre uh, you were preparing for missions and once or twice a year you would deploy and maybe you would do a mission, maybe you wouldn't. Uh, and at the time, the regular army wasn't doing much, right? I mean, there, there really wasn't much going on. So it was uh, a daily crucible. It was a band of brothers thing every day and you were deploying and living with guys. Uh, and it's only done that more. Uh, I don't think the GWAT diluted that. It probably, the regular army caught up quite a bit so that you had that camaraderie in units for years and years and years. Um, but in the 160th, it's, it's embedded. You know, I was fortunate to go to two good friends uh, retired on the same day and between them, they had, um, you know, over 60 years of military experience in two guys. Uh, in one, and that was a little bird pilots, right? So as a, as a crew, you know, uh, they had 60 years of, of flying in the front seat of a little bird. There's, there's Chinook companies in the regular army that don't have as much experience. So when you have that kind of uh, bond and you're together all the time and you're a platoon leader in the unit and then a company commander in the unit, then the ops officer of the unit, um, it can't not be everything that people think it is, a very spirited unit uh, with, with great esprit. And then the last thing I tell you that separates us from um, everyone else uh, to include most of our partner nations is the bond that the 160th has with the guys that the 160th supports that that can't be matched anywhere else. You know, if you're, you're a black Hawk company commander in 101st, there's three infantry brigades you're supporting and you do great. Those guys are wonderful. They do their job. Um, but you don't get to know the guys like we got to know the guys, you know, uh, I guarantee if you call General Miller up, if he's not too busy standing down Afghanistan, he, he could name every little bird guy that was with him in Somalia, you know, 25 years later. And that's because they served together for 25 more years. Uh, that's what makes it different, makes it special. I'm, as we'll talk about, I'm sure I'm still active in the, the charity parts of the Night Stalker Foundation. I was fortunate to go to a, a motorcycle ride they do every year. And so those bonds continue active duty. They've got a great re outreach to the alumni, bringing up the new guys. So it's just a first-class outfit that um, I'm honored to have been allowed to serve in for as long as I was. Well, I think it's interesting that you talk about that, about being next to each other, that esprit, that, 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 you know, that camaraderie between you. But at one point in your career, uh, they moved you from army units to where you were a SEAL team liaison officer. And so, yes, you're still in that world, but you're talking about a completely different kind of one soldier, one operator. Uh, you know, you are you're talking about and, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of apples to oranges in what they're doing uh, mission and things like that. How is it to go from that with that? Go, those guys, you know, you know, you know, 
to guys you don't know. Well, in, in fairness, I, I was there to liaise between the two outfits. So I didn't abandon my relationships or my role with one to go to the other. And the SEALs weren't asking me, um, although I did, they did ask me to do some challenging things just for fun and, and probably, a, probably a bit of hazing. Um, you know, I wasn't there to outshoot a SEAL or outswim a SEAL or anything else. I was there to make sure they used aviation in the best way possible to make sure that our unit didn't lose touch with, um, with, the avi- with the SEALs that we were supporting. And we had a counterpart that was out with the Special Forces guys and another counterpart that was out with the Rangers. Not unlike what the regular Army does. They'll send one of their young guys out to each of those infantry brigades that I talked about. Um, but in the 160th, that happens at a, a higher even investment. I was a promotable captain, uh, promotable to major. Uh, when I was, the unit gave me up. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, one of a few guys of that rank at the time. And the unit says, we need you to go work with the, with the SEALs to make sure that we support them the way we're supposed to. And oh, by the way, you'll have a, a warrant officer working with you as well. So committing two guys to that cause to make sure that we were this band of brothers is uh, a heck of a commitment. It's what makes us different, right? And uh, at the time, my counterpart, uh, Tim Szymanski, uh, was the N3. He's the deputy commander of SOCOM now. So again, that's where these relationships begin that long ago. And uh, they last. And that's why that unit, no matter what happens, will be able to go uh, work together the way they do. And it was the best two years, 18 months I ever had in the Army, <laughs> to be honest. It was no kidding. Time. Oh, yeah, it was great. They took, they, like, like any good outfit would do, whether it's a military unit or a corporation, you, you treat your guests better than your family, you know. And uh, uh, I was welcomed in there. I, was, I, was, I don't know that I ever bought a beer in Virginia Beach. Uh, that kind of thing, you know, they, they really took care of me. Um, it was rewarding. Uh, we taught each other stuff and, and we formed lifelong friendships. It was just a great opportunity to have some, uh, independence and initiative as a young officer. That's really, uh, that's really crazy to hear that you would say that that was the, the best, uh, times. Um, just because I don't think, I don't know if you hear a lot of people say that, that when they're kind of, because you would say you're kind of out of your element doing that, right? I mean, you're a you're a pilot. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. You know, uh, commissioned officers in the army, you're going to fly, and then you're going to not fly. Right. So if I'm going to not fly, I could be ordering new boots for the unit as the S four. I could be doing more writing as the S one. I guess there's worse jobs, is what you're saying. Yeah, I could go <laughs> go hang out at a, a steel compound and shoot whenever I want, lift weights whenever I want. There you go whenever I want and do all that. So it, it was kind of a throw me in the briar patch kind of assignment for sure. And uh, there's been a long line of guys before and after me who held that job. And it's all of them would say it's one of the best jobs they've had. Let's talk about your military career. And when you're in a job like that, there's lots of deployments. There's lots of uh, flight time, being away from the family, uh, kind of being in your own world. And a lot of guys that I've talked to say that a problem that they had is that they always wanted to be back. They were always thinking about it. They wanted to be next to their brother. They always wanted to be in the middle of the fight. Did you see that happening with you during your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with myself and the guys I was responsible for leading. You know, again, back in the 90s, we had, a, we had episodic deployments, not constant deployments like they have now. And it was a fight. When you knew there was a mission going down, we, we called it mission fishing. Everybody would come in. I want to be on that up. I want to be on that. And I want to deploy. Um, 
and you wrote, and then you'd come home. I'm so burned out. Oh, wait a minute. There's another mission going out or there's another training thing going out. And you did that. And you did it. If I'm in hindsight, you did it for the right reasons. You did it for the bonding with your friends that you talked, that you mentioned. You did it for your own ego a little bit. Um, you did it to be better. Um, all those things are in there. Some of those aren't the right reasons. And, uh, it, it puts a heck of a demand on families. Um, it certainly did on mine. Um, some folks handle it better than others. Uh, and you never know how it's going to be. And, and guys, I don't know anybody that really ever walks away. You, you've got to be taken away from it and told to go on the timeout for a little bit and refit yourself. And, uh, it's great to see the army across the board, the services across the board. And I think SOCOM has led the way on, uh, taking care of people's mental health, making that not a, uh, a, a black eye to say, I, I need to take one rotation off. You know, I need, I need a decompression stop on the way out of theater. I need to see the shrink. That's all good. You know, I don't, it's, I, I, I saw the toll back then and we didn't do on a single one of those missions that we would deploy for 10 days with the guys are doing right now or twice a night. So I, I, under, I, I can empathize to a certain extent, but I can certainly extrapolate what they're going through. Well, and, and let's go into that a little bit. When, when you talk about that mental health back in, in your time frame and, and what's going on now, um, it, it was kind of frowned upon, right. To, to say, man, I, I need a break. I need to take a breath. I need to take care of family. It, it, it was to an, to a certain point that was kind of a, uh, kind of a putting your flag up guy where they, they noticed you and not in the way you want them, not in the way you wanted them to notice you. Uh, so how do you find that guys dealt with it then? And then if you know anybody now, how do they deal with it now? What's the difference? And because you said yourself that you think the Army's doing a way better job, but what was it maybe how they did it and how they do it now that was kind of that breaking point between the two? Yeah, well, that's a great question, DJ. And, and I, I, I would tell you, when I was in, I had great leaders um, who would pull guys like myself aside, and then I would adopt their technique. Uh I'll give you a quick anecdote. One of my bosses asked me one day who chief of staff of the army was at the time I couldn't name him. And he said, well, who had his job before him? I didn't know. And he goes, so, so what you're saying is if you make it to the top of your career, one generation removed, nobody will know who you are. If that's the case, why are you missing your son's birthday party? Um, I tragically told that to a guy who was on a deployment and was asking to go home early because his son had to go into emergency surgery. I, and when I found out that the kid knew his, son had this surgery, this medical issue. I said, why are you even on this deployment? And it was just what you said. I can't not be on the deployment, right? People frown on me. Um, and he didn't get it. And uh, tragically, he didn't get home in time. And his son passed. And that was the army. We we had raised people to think that way. And I had a leader who told me when I asked to, to have some time to refit for my family, he goes, I don't, I don't believe in that. I should wear you to a nub and you should bounce back the next day. So we had that dichotomy of leaders back when I was in, uh, and it worked out differently for, for different people. Um, in the early GWAT era, about 2007 or so, when guys were really starting to come home with PTSD, we're, you know, back-to-back deployments. There was finally time for back-to-back deployments. Um, I had a guy working for me in my company who had been a, a 160th leader, whose son was serving in the 160th, who had a mental health issue. Um, and I said, go out, talk to the unit commander, and let's see what's going on. And the unit said, well, he's the first guy that's ever had a problem. And, of course, my 
buddy who had been a deputy commander of the unit said, he's the first guy you know who's had a problem. Now, what are we going to do about it? And we did. The unit, not because of that, let several incidents like that. The unit, the Army, all started to wake up and say, this is, this is a pandemic within the military. You know, it is really a bad, it's an issue. We've got to re- remove the stigmatism. Uh, they started pushing psychologists and psychiatrists and family support elements into formal programs uh, down to lower levels. Uh, they started to notice things. Leaders are forcing people to stay home. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, I really do think they're doing a great job. They're doing um, the leader, you know, prior to the uh, Department of the Army Select Command, you go through a board, your subordinates weigh in on you now that, you know, this is a toxic leader. This is the guy who you know, to, told the guy having surgery to stay in the field, you know. So all those things come home to roost now. We're, I think as a, as an institution, the military's getting rid of those guys. And, and I, I can't imagine, when I told a, a, I told a three-star admiral that I was resigning, I was retiring and not taking command because I needed to go take care of my family. And he, uh, we were on a plane, and he got up and gave me a hug and said, Brian, too many guys realize that too late. And, and that that's a senior leader in today's military. So I think it's the message is there. And I think guys are, are uh, taking care of one another. And when I ultimately did retire, um, uh, probably 10 years before I would, I would have a black eye in the community for, for quitting rather than continuing to ride the horse, you know, and that certainly has not happened to me. I was, my decisions were respected and my, my uh, contributions uh, today remain welcome. So. So here's two things that come to mind when you when you talk about that. <clears throat> and and I'm glad that you brought that up because I wanted to talk to you about that, that that it specifically says in there that you stepped away from command to take care of family. So the first part of the question is what was it if you don't mind talking about it that that you knew like man I, I, I'm messing this family thing up or I'm not doing the right thing or you know this isn't worth it or whatever it was. What was it that kind of got you thinking because you're I mean you're looking at full bird status I mean you, you there's no limit once you hit there there's really no limit to stopping you but at that moment when everything's right in front of you you go nope not worth it I'm going to go over in this direction yeah well and again not with false humility you're right I mean I was on a good career path I was selected for a good battalion command but who knows what's going to happen right I, I right you know, I had friends who took battalion command and didn't survive battalion command. <laughs> I have others who are now uh, pinning on three and four stars. So, yeah, there. But certainly I, I loved my career um, and I didn't want to step away because of the work or anything else. Uh, you know, I without too much details, my my wife was struggling with some of her own issues. I wasn't the perfect husband. I was gone a lot. Uh, I at that time, I noticed it was manifesting itself negatively on my kids. My two younger boys at the time were in uh, elementary and middle school. My oldest son was going off to college. And when I talked to him about it, and uh, I'll never forget it, I'm probably going to get a little bit emotional here, but he said, uh, he goes, Dad, I've never begrudged a day you were gone because I knew what you were doing. And I was raised around some of the finest men in the world. He goes, but, but my brothers need you right now. They don't need you off in Iraq or on deployments. They need you home. Um, and then it became easy. Then it's, you know, uh, I told uh, then the deputy commander, SOCOM General Brown, I said, I made an uh, oath to the Army, but a vow to my family. I know what I got to do. And he said, Brian, we got your back. We'll do whatever it takes. Um, 
so that was the decision, you know, and uh, I know others who have faced that decision and it worked out and their family stayed together. Life was good. And um, I know others still who stayed in the army and left a marriage and kids on the rocks. And, you know, and there's what's the, uh, the the Russian thing say? All, all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are uniquely different. So I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. You know, you never know how it's going to turn out. I know what I had to do. I did it. I have absolutely zero regrets. I miss, you know, when I when I see my friends, when I when I go to memorial services, especially uh, Catholic guilt kicks in. You know, it's not like the army to uh, leave while we're in contact, and we've been in contact for twenty years now. But uh, it's you know, it, it, it still doesn't sit well with me. But I know I did the right thing, and, and I think a lot of guys. I, I know friends of mine who have now made those choices at at 06, at 05, um, at CW4 or 05, you know, uh, starting majors, you know. Uh, I think it's good. And I think when they share those experiences, um, all which are unique and all personal, I think that's healthy for the for the enterprise, healthy for the ordinary, for the military as a profession, that you get only the right guys in there who got who can give 100%. You know, the worst thing I could have done was give less than 100% to a bunch of soldiers I was entrusted to lead. So what do you think the difference was? Because you're talking to your oldest, and he tells you, I never begrudged a day, but right now, my brothers need you. What was the difference? Yeah, I wasn't there to, I wasn't there to make up the difference, right? So, again, I don't want to put it all on, on my ex-wife, but because for for 15 of the 20 years we were in the, in the Army together, she was a fantastic military wife. And it, it's a tough job, right? Absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly tough job, and I only went to the toughest places to make it even tougher. Um, and she did great, but then she had her own issues and struggles, and we had grown all those all those cliches, with, which are happen to also be real, um, where I couldn't step away and know that the kids were being put off to school correctly. Um, that you know that that I could just helicopter, no pun intended, that I could just fly back in uh, two weeks out of every month. And, and make the house right again. Uh, I couldn't do it anymore. It's just, I couldn't deliver that message. The, the kids were at an age where they needed a more full-time presence from their dad. Um, regardless of what my wife was doing, they needed it from me. And uh, I was gonna be taking command. Back then they were still changing command in theater. I was gonna be taking command in Iraq. Um, so it was, it was not an easy decision, it was the right decision. And the guy who would have taken command Instead of me, did a great job, and, and we remain friends today. So, ever uh, not not regrets. Do you regret maybe not doing it sooner? No, I don't. You know, I, okay. I probably you know, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just answered that every way I could, right? Um, <laughs> that, that's too. okay. Uh, People can take what they feel from it. You know, I, again, I you learn. One of the places you learn the most, I think, in, is at people's retirement ceremonies. You get people speak wisdom at their retirement ceremonies. And I heard a guy once say that some famous general, uh, they asked him what he would do different in his life. And he goes, I don't know what I'd do different, but I would do two things the same. I'd marry the same woman, I'd join the United States Army. And, and I say that now, I, I would. I mean, if I hadn't have married my wife, I wouldn't have three wonderful sons and now two wonderful grandchildren. I wouldn't have life experiences that made me who I am. I certainly wouldn't have had the adeptness to face some of the challenges I've faced as a contractor and, you know, as a leader, I had empathy with some folks that, uh, 
if things are all peaches and cream, maybe I wouldn't end in empathy. So should I pull the plug earlier? You know, my kids would tell you no. Um, but there's a, there's a three-year period in our family that's not a whole lot of happy memories. So yeah, I guess I would like to erase those, but, um, and we're doing that now, you know, and it's, uh, I say we're a modern family because my ex-wife and I get along fine. We have Thanksgiving together with all the kids and, you know, it's all, it's all good, man. <laughs> Let's 180 that. Okay. Okay. So you don't regret doing it earlier. Are there any regrets? No, none. Uh, as I've said, I, I miss things. I have uh, remorse, not regrets. Okay. I, I wouldn't say now, right? I mean, I when I hear of uh, a friend that did a tough mission, um, when I hear of uh, a great mission, it was fun and nobody got hurt, you know? All those things, I wish I was there. I want to be part of it. The fact is I wouldn't be, right? At some point, uh, in my, if, if I had stayed and had the success that, that would come with the time I was in, I'd be in a headquarters somewhere issuing instructions. I wouldn't be down in the unit. That's what I miss. Right. So that that's that's gone anyway. So I will tell you, you know, when we talked initially, DJ, about uh, your podcast being an instrument for guys thinking about getting out, one of the things, and I do some mentoring to guys getting out. One of the things I tell guys all the time is you are going to miss serving you're going to miss the band of brothers. You're going to, there's nothing I've ever done or will do in my life as important as what I did in the military, as self-fulfilling, as adrenaline pumping, as a one minute call when you're going into an LZ, none of that's ever going to happen again, but you can't let the hole be completely unfilled. You've got to find a place to serve that gives you a sense of purpose. And there's lots of places to do that. There's, there's, you know, Team Red, White, and Blue, and go out and run with a veteran. There's uh, writing a check, for God's sake. There's just lots you can do. And if you don't continue to serve, that's where I think a lot of the guys that that struggle when they get out, um, it's because they haven't filled that part of the gap, right? The, the you, you, You've got to remain part of the tribe. And as long as you're a contributing member of the tribe, the tribe will keep you. Um, you know, the old Indians... Uh, they, they were arrow makers, right? They couldn't go hunt the buffalo, but they'd go back and make an arrow. Well, go make an arrow, you know, do that for the tribe. Um, and, and life will continue. It'll be good and there'll be no regrets. Last question to your career. As you're stepping away from it, you're realizing what's in front of you. With everything that you've done now, so this is going to be another two-part question. With everything that you've done now, did you have that vision as you're stepping away and number two, now that you look back, could you have ever had that vision if the answer is no? I, yes, you could have had the vision. Uh, I think uh, I've been around a bunch of my contemporaries who started their own businesses, um, who are doing some amazing things. And I think they had that vision. Um, I think they had the vision late in their career. Um, and, they're, and they're putting it to work. And I'm very proud of them. I'm happy for them. That wasn't me. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do when I retired. Um, my boss at the time, who became my partner in Special Applications Group, um, and I'd worked for him twice uh, and worked with him uh, a lot. He was the ops officer of the task force in Somalia, Dave Lawrence. And Dave said, hey, you know, let's let's start a business. I'm like, well, what will we do? He goes, I don't know, but let's not work for anybody else. Let's Let's think of some things we could do. This is 04, so 
law enforcement was beginning to get trained up in special ops tactics and we had a relationship with the FBI. We had a relationship with LAPD. There's a bunch of things that were, yeah, maybe we could do that. But I didn't, I had no idea how to do it. I didn't know what it would mean. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, a SEAL, was moving to Utah. So I threw my motorcycle in his Diddy uh, move uh, so he could get extra weight. So I think the statute of limitations is uh, gone on that. Um, and, <laughs> I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> so I, uh, once I moved him to Utah, I, I rode the motor, the Harley back from Utah to Tampa to clear my head and figure out what I was going to do. And I made it to Deadwood, South Dakota and called the one guy I had a job offer from and said, I, I can't do it. I think I want to strike out on my own. And he was a, a, a Air Force special tactics guy who started his own business. And he said, uh, Hey man, when you get back in town, come by and see me and I'll show you how to do it, which was pretty awesome. And I'm, you know, I'm turning down a job offer from him. Uh, then I called my now or then partner and said, let's do it. Let's go all in. He said, uh, okay, how soon can you be back in Tampa? I got a, a meeting for us in DC with, uh, uh, the brand new DHS. So I hauled ass back, uh, faster than I wanted to do my exploration trip and, and started the company. So I, there's no, I, I, there's no way I could have known I would be able to do all this. Didn't I knew it was possible. I knew that being in the military and in the tribe and specifically the special ops tribe had opened doors and, and relationships, but I didn't know what those doors would lead to. And I'm, I'm shocked every day what it did. Now we move into the next part. 2004, we set the scene. You start this company, Tampa, Florida, with your buddy. It's a values-based uh, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. Uh, I don't know that it's really that small anymore because after over 16 years, you grew to 150-plus employees. You have operations in the United States. You have 10 partner nations, including Europe, the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, you work with DOD, FBI, partner nations. Like, it's not a small company by any stretch of the imagination. So I guess the question to me is you leave the military, all of this stuff's going on. Then you go to this company that you start and it's just as fast paced. You're, 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 you're making in a different way, Brian. I mean that in a different way, but it's just as fast paced. Do you ever worry like, Oh shit, I stepped in it again. Or are you, nah, I know how to navigate this minefield. No, I, I was never, never scared. You know, uh, certainly uh, all the skills I needed, we, my partner and I needed to build a company from two guys to 160 guys. Um, I joke, everything I needed to learn about running a business, I learned in the officer basic course, you know, uh, soldiers eat first, you know, as long as you got a raincoat, your private's not wet, all those kind of things. You know, if you, if you bring that mindset, uh, be the kind of company we wanted to engage with when we were in the military. Um, and then it was just hard work, you know, is figure this shit out quick or starve. Um, it was a lot of work. It was late nights. It was, you know, falling asleep with a laptop and, um, a lot of trips, a lot of pitches and trips that went nowhere, a lot of mistakes. Um, but over time it, and, and, and chances, um, very steep learning curve. Um, but timing is everything, right? And once again, the blind squirrel found the acorn, uh, you know, we started in 2004, the SDVOSB, Services Able Veteran Small Business, uh, set aside, uh, only became public law in 2003. 
So it was a new thing. Department of Defense was struggling to get SDSBs on contract. Um, it's very difficult for them at the time. Uh, you know, when, when most of your budget's building airplanes, you're not going to hire a two-man shop. What do, what do we do, right? We empty trash cans and shred papers, but that's not what we, we were about. So, uh, so that timing was good. People were looking to partner with us. Um, it was GWAT was just starting. What, we were a year into the invasion of Iraq at that point, maybe 18 months into it. DHS was struggling. You know, within chaos, there's opportunity. And uh, in that chaos, I used to say, we got fat off of a lot of crumbs. You know, a lot of uh, big businesses would call us and say, this is perfect for you guys. It's too, it's too small for us to go after. And it'd be five guys doing a pretty complex task and or, or a, a nine-month study that was going to lead to nothing. You were going to work your way out of a job. Well, for nine months, we get a paycheck, and then we'll figure it out. So, yeah, I wasn't scared. It was, it was a hard learning curve. It was a lot of work. Um, I did it in front of my kids who were watching that and watching the success and watching joy and, you know, company logos coming home that they could wear the shirt and they could be part of something that they weren't when I was in the military. And, and oh, by the way, I started coaching football and all that kind of stuff that I couldn't have done before. So, and that's, that's what I meant by, that's what I meant by scared, Brian, not necessarily scared of the work, scared that you would get back into it and the family would go to the wayside again, but you just answered that, that, that your sons are a part of it, that you're coaching football, that you're, you're taking part in everything that you needed to, but there was a lot of late nights involved with it. So that's got to feel pretty good to you that you step away from a high stress job to another high stress job, but you've learned how to deal with all of that stuff and still take care of that mission that you said you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. DJ and, and, and absolutely couldn't have done that without my partner, Dave, he, he, he has gone through some of the same things, you know, he kept his family together, but there was family stress and we shared that with each other. And it'd be like, Hey brother, I got this trip. You stay home. You just do what you got to do. We took care of each other and, and then hired other guys that would also share that load with us that we could trust. And, and we, we did trust guys pretty early to go do some things that a lot of small businesses that might fail wouldn't give a guy that long of a leash. But if we didn't, then I was not going to coach football and I wasn't going to be at the next birthday party and all those kinds of things. And um, it, it, it worked out great. You know, the things work out in strange ways. Well, I think it's funny how you keep saying a blind squirrel finds a nut, but I think after a couple of times of it happening, it's not really a blind squirrel finding a nut. It's a guy that knows what he's doing, getting in there and grabbing what he needs to grab. Well, look, I, I I'm not, Nobody's ever accused me of being overly humble. Uh, I, I'm not overly <laughs> humble. I, I know I'm smarter than the average duck. Uh, but, you know, nobody in my career path is humble, right? I'm a, I'm a Irish Catholic aviator in special ops. And what are the chances of me being humble, right? But but that's um, the, but that, I think that's needed. And I, I don't think we see that. We I've talked to a couple of guests about this. I don't think we see that anymore. There is, of course, there's something to say about humility, but you have to have people that are, are, you know, very strong in their belief about their job and what they know what they're doing and they believe in their cause. Yeah. At the end of the day, that decision in 04 was just that it was, Hey, are we going to bet on ourselves? And, and we did and it worked. And so why, you know, I, I say this and all as a way of patting myself on the back, the only thing I've ever tried to do and seriously tried to accomplish and did not accomplish was my marriage. It didn't, and it was a 20 year marriage, I guess by today's standards, that's a, hugely successful marriage. Um, 
But anything else, if I put my nose to the grindstone, it worked. And I, and I, I think that's not a rare cap- uh, rare characteristic. And I think it certainly wasn't uncommon in the, in the paths that I walk, you know, SEALs and uh, 160th guys. Um, so when you have that confidence and you're willing to bet on yourself, then it's, it's preparedness and hard work meeting opportunity. Uh, and that's that's kind of what's been the story of my life, you know. It's just uh, never got what I wanted the first time out, but when the second thing came around, I made the best of it. And it's been it's been an amazing journey. Sixteen years. I mean, in in a long term sense, that's not a long time, uh, especially to grow the company that much. I mean, that is an exponential growth. When you figure you started with just you two, sixteen years, you're at 150 plus employees. Let's talk about some of the products and services that they offer, because I want you to maybe describe them a little better than I can. So the first one is aviation. A couple things fall under that flight training, academics, surveys and assessments and support. So if you can go down and just tell people what they do in that area. Yeah. So special application group try to set ourselves off differently than most small businesses. And I think we did uh, in, in being a full spectrum aviation training services company. So if you think of any training continuum, whether it's flying, shooting, being an engineer, there's individual skills all the way up here to advanced collective skills, right? So it's intuitive that someone who can do advanced collective skills can teach backwards on that slope, but somebody who can only teach individual skills may not be able to teach collective skills. So that was kind of our premise. So we began doing individual training for advanced skills. So not basic flight training. So a guy comes out of Fort Rucker, that's, that was not our target set, but he ends up at, um, it's at one point, a brand new FBI agent who's been flying for a while. He's now learning to fly, uh, UH 60 mic models. Um, well, we can teach him how to do fast rope in in a more deliberate way because that's what 160th guys do. Uh, for our partner nations, we did the same thing. We went mostly with the Eastern European nations who were weaning off of the Russian uh, way of doing things. We did that entire spectrum of training. They're already aviators. They're switching to a Western aircraft. And now we're teaching them, a, we would call advanced special tactics. Uh, in some cases, they were no kidding, really special ops tactics. But in most cases, you're bringing a former Warsaw Pact country up to 1995, 101st capabilities, right? Um, so we taught night vision goggles. We taught uh, formation night vision goggles. We taught gunnery. We taught uh, air assault planning. Uh, we taught uh, reconnaissance, all that collective training stuff. And surrounding that package, you know, again, a human's more important than hardware. It's not a Lance Armstrong. It's not about the bike. It's not about the helicopter. It's training that guy how to do tactical risk assessment training that leader how to do military decision-making process stuff. Um, so we had that full suite of training, how to do leader, how to take a unit and in, institutionalize a leader development program. So we would write those programs for guys, get them all checked out through the U.S. government so that they were, uh, we could disclose them and share them. And then ultimately, we would want the U.S. government alongside of us while we taught it, helping them have a relationship with this, this partner nation at the one or two guy level, as opposed to sending a whole unit over there to do the training. Uh, so that that really began the flight training. Uh, then from there, we grew that within the FBI, uh, and then we grew it 
with the National Guard. The National Guard contracts out most of their uh, institutional flight training that does what Pensacola does for the Navy, what Fort Rucker does for the Army. Uh, and we won that contract a couple years ago. So we provide maintenance instructors, uh, aviation life support instructors, instructor pilots, sim instructors uh, for them as well. So, um, and then from that, we, we teamed with Department of State uh, to a partner nation building in South and Central America as they train people in counter-narcotics. Um, we fly alongside our uh, Peruvian and Panamanian partners and teach them to become autonomous. And at some point we work our way out of a job and we'll go into the next country. So that's the, the full spec. We'll go in and we've gone in and done assessments to say back to the U.S. government, do not go fly on these helicopters. You know, you, you don't want to, you don't want to fly Kenyan Hueys. You know, that's, that's probably not a good, it's not going to work out well. Um, and we know because we just went there and looked, you know. Uh, so it's so funny. I work with a guy from Kenya. <laughs> So I'll have to tell him. Uh, I'm in trouble with you right now. No, no. So when you say that, though, when you say work yourself out of a job, you've said that a couple different times. But it seems like working yourself out of a job almost works you into another one because that that street, I guess you call it that that street cred that that people are saying, no, these guys know what they're doing. Move it over into this country. Move it into this country. Have you found that that's probably the best way is just not necessarily you guys, but word of mouth of people that have worked with you before moving you through these different areas of operation. Absolutely. DJ. That's a, that's a great point. You know, you got to do the job with integrity. That's what I said. We wanted to do up front. We've left money on the table on every one of our projects where we said, you don't need this. You're not ready for it. You don't want it, whatever. Um, let just don't do it. Or here's what we think you ought to do. And then that, that has always come back to us, you know, so, so you work your way out of one job, but because you did it with integrity, they give you the next job. But more to your point, they, they tell their, their friends and they tell their friends and, and they realize you're not there for a jobs program. You're not there. Unfortunately, a lot of what I think the U.S. government does with our partner nation is we sell them a product and we give them what someone once called an economic millstone. You know, I pick on the Kenyans, but why do we give the Kenyans outdated Hueys without a maintenance program of support? You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. That but wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that the military does that to itself? Look Absolutely. at the difference between the Army and the Marine Corps. When the Army's yeah, so done with all their shit, they give it to the Marines and let them use yeah. it. Or we, or we go design a new Blackhawk and have two different engines on it for a common aircraft to cross. <laughs> oh, we can't get the same uniform, DJ, right? Right. Everybody's in the perfect camouflage pattern, so we now got a supply chain issue in theater. So we do it to ourselves. But, but as a business, SAG did a great job of leaving capabilities when we left. And that's the issue. You're, you're not delivering a product. You're delivering a capability. And if you do that... The, we we got we gave the uh, Croatians their first night vision goggle qualifications, uh, and they'd only flown Russian goggles, which I looked through once and went, "Holy crap! We could have beat these guys any night, you know, because <laughs> none of their stuff works." Um, but the the guy who was in charge of that from the Croatians is now the chief of staff of the Croatian Air Force, and went back and saw him for some other training, and he told his entire staff, "He goes, make no mistake, the only people who've ever sold us the capability." that we're still using 
are these guys. And he pointed at, at my instructor pilots. So when you have that kind of reputation, work will find you. And, and it has. Uh, now, it's not work that, again, a, a Lockheed Martin or a Raytheon or a Boeing wants. You know, they it's it's four guys for a year. Now, that's that's decimal dust to them on their revenue stream. But we provide a service, we make good money and uh, and get to hire a lot of great night stalkers and, and conventional aviators to go out and work in a good environment. You would agree products fail, capabilities don't. Humans are more important than hardware. It's, it's, it's all there is to it. Yeah, it's, you know. If you can troubleshoot the product, it's going to last longer. You could, you take a great army aviator and put him in a Robinson helicopter. He'll get something done with that. You know, the most basic tourist helicopter. Uh, but you take the Mac daddy 160th Chinook and put a novice aviator in there and ask them to get to the top of that mountain. And tell me how that, well that works out. Yeah. I, um, it just doesn't, it's never going to work. Right. Or, or don't bring the sustainment arm for it. You, you'll, that's what started special ops aviation, right? Uh, confusing enthusiasm and capability and, and not investing in the right things. So. Operational staff support. Uh, we've talked about the training a lot. Uh, training readiness management system. Do you want to speak about any of that stuff or is that pretty much no, boilerplate? It's, and... it's kind of boilerplate, you know, but I, but I think we do it slightly different, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm marketing a little bit here for a company I no longer own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, our, the original tagline of SAG was, you know, uh, actionable solutions, meaning, you know, you want to hire a guy, we'll get you the right guy. We'll hire the guy you want the way you want, because we're a small business. We're not, I don't got to go through 16 HR hurdles for you to hire the one-armed paper hanger that you want. Well, we'll get him. No big deal. But also we've taken on some big challenges at times. Uh, at one point, SOCOM asked us to find a cultural anthropologist with a top secret clearance who had experience in both Afghanistan and Iraq within the last year. I'm sure there's we a found, ton of those. We, we found both of them and, and had a bidding <laughs> order who we would hire, you know? Um, well, we did it in, we did it in, I want to say three weeks and the guy left his academic job and, and moved down to Tampa. So being able to do those kinds of staff hiring built the reputation. And then like everybody else, there's some great companies out there. We all bid on the same work. Unfortunately, the government turns that into the lowest bitter war on the back of a bunch of great veterans who just want to continue to serve as contractors. But that's part of the job. Uh, TRMS is something different. It's a uh, training readiness management system. Uh, we had a, a fortune to work with a visionary guy at the FBI hostage rescue team who, who has since retired. Uh, and he said, I don't know what this Army medal, mission essential task list thing is, but I think I need something like that. Can you guys do that? And we said, yeah, sure we can. So we went and wrote a medal for the hostage rescue team um, that then we could uh, we could ob objectively record who's done what training. Are they current? Are they proficient? Why not? What, you know, the, the HRT shares a sniper range with Quantico, with the Marines. Uh, they use TRMS and its reporting to lobby Congress for dedicated sniper range. You know, if you don't measure it, how do you prove it? So TRMS helps them do that. Uh, the other thing that this HRT does, which is not at all classified, but, you know, the, the FBI has 56 field offices, fiefdoms across America. 
uh, and they have agents who are part-time uh, SWAT guys. By day, they're investigating white-collar crimes, and in a hostage situation or a crisis situation, they put on their SWAT gear. Uh, so this standardized all 56 of those field offices and tracked it and reported it up to a central location, much like the military would do, right? So you couldn't say, oh, heck, all hell broke loose in Oklahoma City. What do we do? You go, well, shit, they're down three snipers. Let's we need to send them three snipers or or they're down a hostage negotiator. Let's make sure that's on the next plane going. So it really did help them out quite a bit. Uh, it's automated system. It served them well. It's, it's probably dated now. It needs refreshing. Um, but it, we found that interesting. A lot of other government agencies didn't want it because, frankly, non-DOD agencies don't want to hold themselves accountable. That's what I was just about to say. They don't want to know what's going. Not necessarily. No. They don't want to know what's going on. They don't want other people to know what's going on. They don't want it reportable. Right. Uh, and and that was actually part of the FBI's problem at first too. They said, "Look, everything we do now it's discoverable." They said, "Well, don't is, isn't it also discoverable that you were trained?" You know, and and unfortunately they had a fatality in a training accident, and they pulled up the TRMS records and said, "No, you guys did everything right. This guy was trained. He was doing what he was supposed to do." So it does work. Uh, we pitched it in on the Panhandle and in Florida after some hurricanes to, as a method of uh, ensuring when multiple jurisdictions come together, they can all get on the same radio and talk to one another. Nobody wanted that. They, they want to be able to say, they're know, in charge. County is the one with the bad radio. Screw them. So I think it's also being from a law enforcement background. It's also uh, people wanting to be, uh, the big one on scene. They want to be the one controlling. They want to be the operation controller. Uh, if you put everyone on the same sheet of music and you see what people are capable of, what they're not capable of, that cuts you out of the pie really quickly if you're not up to snuff. Yeah, and God forbid somebody's more capable than you. You know, uh, and 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 unfortunately, the amateurs in this world, and I'm sure you've encountered a lot of them. They they they. Uh, they measure capability again back to equipment. You've yeah. got you've got the shiny fire truck or the fire boat that you're never going to use, but your radios don't talk to each other during a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, yeah. And you know, as a Tampa guy, very proud of my Tampa Bay Lightning getting ready to have their second uh, Stanley Cup boat parade tomorrow. Um, the fire boat will be out there, paid for with your nine eleven tax dollars. It's great. Well, at least it's getting put to use. Yeah, I hope they can talk to each other on the radio. Like yeah. So if anybody's looking for that, it's the Special Applications Group. They're based out of Tampa, Florida. If you want to get a hold of them, you can find them on the internet at sagusa.org. That's sagusa.org. Uh, they also have a telephone number of 813-254-9050. So if anyone wants to do that, you're also still a part-time, uh, from what I read, that you're still an advisor to the company. Yes, I am. Uh, we handed it off to a, a, a very able team and, and I'm on the hotline for assist every now and again and help with a couple projects right now. And, um, it's a great company. We're, we're very, I'm very proud of the way I left it and it's going to exceed anything I ever did with it. So now let's move on to what we've all been waiting for. We want to talk about the, uh, lifelong goal of probably a lot of people that you have <laughs> been able to accomplish. One, to make your own whiskey and just have a gigantic supply on hand at all times in your life. Uh, Kennedy Castle Fine Spirits. This is what brought me to you in the first place. And 
it was a combination of the way you guys present your bottles. Um, it is a very upper class look. It's, it's a very polished look. And you haven't been in this business for a long time. You yourself have not been in this business for very long, but it's a very polished look. So what we're going to do is we're going to go down the list of everything that you guys make. I am going to read uh, what they are supposed to be and uh, what they're supposed to taste like. So let's start with the 10-year aged Irish whiskey. That's it is a wooden oak nose combined with the sweetness of dried fruit and butterscotch, spice walnut, sherry, and tobacco rain. Buttery cream lingers as a hint of vanilla finishes. I got to tell you, that sounds amazing. And I would like to say that was my creative writing uh, coming full circle, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is a, uh, it's a great whiskey. Um, we, we are very fortunate that we have teamed with uh, a gentleman named John Teeling. Um, John Teeling is the godfather of the revolution uh, resurgence of Irish whiskey. He's an older gentleman. He ran Kilbegan uh, Distillery in, in the center of Ireland for years, uh, sold it. And then the Irish government came back and said, look, we need more than three distilleries. This is, we need to do better. So he started his own, uh, he started Teeling's Whiskey. Uh, and then he also started his own distillery at Great Northern where he has uh, given us the good services of his master distiller uh, to help us come up with these multiple blends of Irish spirits that we have. Uh, and the 10-year-old is our, our premier whiskey. Um, this is the one of the three that I was uh, fairly well involved in the uh, selection of the blend that we were trying for. And I think it's fantastic whiskey. It, it's got a beautiful color to it, too. Uh, if you watch the um, version of this on video, you'll be able to see what these bottles look like. Uh, we're going to get into exactly why that castle is in the background, but let's move on to the dapper. Now, this is my favorite bottle that you guys have. I I love the uh, part skull, part dapper, part James Bond look of this bottle. This is my absolute favorite bottle that you guys make. Well, yeah, and we, uh, we actually, uh, one of our partners, uh, Jeremy, is a younger guy. He specifically wanted to tailor the younger crowd. Um, we'll talk more about the castle in a bit, but as, as you know, DJ, it's one of the most haunted castles in Ireland and probably therefore Europe. Um, so we wanted to pay homage to that legacy with the, with the skeleton there and the dapper blend. This has got a, a it's a little younger whiskey. Um, it's very good. Um, this is an excellent whiskey mixed into like a, a an Irish mule, I call it. So like a, a, a vodka mule, but use an Irish whiskey instead. It, it blends really well, mixes with other things really well. We made some uh, lemonade type drinks with it at St. Patrick's Day this year that were very popular. And, it, and it's good on the rocks or straight up as well. It's great whiskey. It's a distinctive essence of vanilla and toffee to both nose and flavor. Double distilled, malt joins in, adding fruity esters and increased body. Triple distilled, malt fully matured in a... Uh, Chablis wine cast completes the collaboration, offering mineral overtones and a distinctive finish whiskey. Um, so this one, what I've noticed with all of yours is you're not looking for that 
a lot of people like whiskey because you know you're drinking whiskey. You know what I mean? It's got that burn. You know that it's going. Your whiskeys, and I have a bottle of Dapper on the way here, uh, seem to be more mellow. Is there a reason that you guys chose to go more mellow? Yeah, I think we, we wanted to distinguish ourselves in the premier blends of Irish whiskey, and Irish whiskeys are are almost exclusively blended. Uh, you know, the scotches, the, there are single malt Irish whiskeys, but that's more of, an, of a scotch thing than an Irish whiskey thing. Uh, certainly the, a, a big trend now in lots more bourbons, um, Kentucky whiskey, if you're if you're a purist, uh, you know, but, but bourbons uh, as well being that stronger stronger taste, which, which I enjoy myself as well. We want it to blend. We want it to be smooth. Uh, we, you know, the, the blends on these, the 10 year old, the seven year old, the, that age is in an Irish blended whiskey. That's the age of the youngest whiskey in there. Um, so that, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good price point and a pretty good taste for a 10 year old or a seven year old whiskey. Um, that's why we went for that. Uh, again, we did specifically target, the millennials, you know, the um, Irish whiskeys are the fastest growing spirits in the world right now. Thousand uh, percent increase since 2005. Uh, something like uh, 15% in the States. So it's growing in the States. Now, part of that, again, I'm approved that I'm not good with math. Uh, part of that's because you're going statistically from a place where there were only really three whiskeys and now there's a lot more. So some of that's caused some of its effect. Uh, but we wanted to be in that in that premier to, uh, to super premium area. And I think with these two, we're, we're straddling both ends of that. And, uh, so far, so good as far as the reception goes. To come into that premium blend, though, that's a hard thing to do because those premium blends have been around. They have history. People know what they like. Um, if, if you look at like like I work with a guy that that ordered a bottle of something. I'm not going to say what it is because we're not here to promote them. But in order to buy this bottle in the liquor store that he goes to, he had to take his receipt, write his phone number and his name on it, put it in there. And if they draw it, then he has the ability to buy this bottle, but he only has 48 hours. And if he doesn't respond to their phone call in 48 hours, they put it back to someone else. So I say all that to say this, those premium blends are very well known. They have a history. People know what they want for you to come in and kind of kick open the door and bring these new ones in. First off, what's the thinking behind it? Because it seems like a crazy endeavor when you first think about it. And number two, how do you take those people's thoughts and go, yeah, that's good. And we know you like that. But if you like that, you'll love this. Well, I think the first thing, it's got to be accessible, right? You know, it, I, I don't understand the business model that says charge so much and make it so rare that you can only sell a little bit of it. I'm, I'm sure that model works. You know, I'm not here to promote somebody else's brand either, but since it's bourbon, uh, I love Blanton's. And I went about collecting the horses on the top. And all of a sudden, you can't get Blanton's. Not even my favorite whiskey. But, you know... For Christ's sake, make some more, stick another bottle cap one, and you'll sell some whiskey. So we want to make it accessible, and that's part of what this is, is doing. The reason it's possible is, again, there is a, a, a surge in the popularity of the, of the spirit, um, but there's a limited amount of aged ready whiskey. You know, uh, American bourbon has got to be seven years. Ireland, you've got to, it's got to be on the island of Ireland 
for a minimum of three years, but nobody wants a three-year-old whiskey. So by, by partnering with Teeling and Great Northern Distillery, we were able to access, you know, warehouses full of already aged whiskey and kind of jump to the front of the line with a premium. You know, the only other, the, the big guys are doing that, right? For years, you either drink Jameson's, uh, Bushmills, or Tullamore Dew. That was all they had. Even Jameson's now has cask-made, you know, kind of the stuff we're doing with our 10-year-old and with our 7-year-old. They've so even broken they into the beer market. And they're getting into the beer market yeah. because these barrels are going back and forth across the world and being put to use. Um, because thank God for the... Uh, the barrel stave union that made it so that bourbon can only use a barrel once. Uh, and now we're, we're being able to, uh, to use them multiple times, but being able to enter, uh, the market with already aged whiskey is totally setting us apart from a lot of other folks, you know, uh, uh especially with, with the Irish spirits. Uh, we found out today we're going to have a national distribution. So you won't have to wait two weeks for your bottle, uh, probably in place within the next two weeks. So, uh, that's what uh, that's what kind of gave us the courage to do it. But again, like everything we've talked about tonight, TJ, the story is not a straight path, right? We're gonna we're gonna come back to it. But it began with the castle. It, it didn't begin with, hey, I want to be in the whiskey business. I mean, that was a natural outcome of my life to get, move up on the supply chain uh, to uh, to booze. Um, but it began with buying a castle, um, and then we said, shit, we ought to be making whiskey because we got a great. Story. Uh, John Teeling, one of the things he told us when we met him, he goes, the two secrets to good whiskey, have a good story and don't offend anybody with the taste. So I think we've got a great story with the castle and the ghost and all that. And I think we, we're not in danger of offending anybody with the taste. If you want to drink um, Blanton's or all that, which I do enjoy, I love, uh, that's good for one night. But if you want a nice, smooth blend, warm your, warm your esophagus, you know, uh, this is this is pretty good stuff for that. Let's talk about a couple of other of your things. The cider cask finish, uh, originally aged in American oak casks uh, that housed Irish apple cider, double distilled malt, originally aged in an ex bourbon barrel, then introduced to a cider cask, allowed to mature for six more months, has the notes of lemongrass, apple, freshly roasted malt, flavors of wood and tart apple, following cold, uh, follow. Cold, uh, culminating in a light, crisp, and dry finish. This one's best enjoyed over ice. So this one almost, to me, if you can say, seems like a summer whiskey. Yeah, I think so. It's, um, I think that's part of the Tampa in us coming out, you know, a little uh, something a little lighter. We, we definitely wanted to, um, as we'll talk about with the gin, we wanted to tie back into some of the, um, the botanical green aspect of Ireland and the, the citrusy part of uh, and summer feeling of Florida. I think we wanted to capture some of that. Um, and, and I think we have, um, I, I'm not sure this whiskey's for everyone. Um, and that's, what's good about having, you know, three blends, uh, that can be paired differently with different food, different times, different cigars. We're, we're doing some cigar pairings here pretty soon. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one is received. Uh, our initial batch, it was not available. Uh, it is available now. Now that you brought up the gin, let's talk about it real quick. Uh, it's the Bloom Botanical, wildly delicious, refreshing, perfect in a cocktail or with a simple splash of tonic. Now, what we need to talk about gin. Gin, to me, is a very underrated uh, alcohol. 
Um, it's not used by a lot of people. It has great taste and it's great in cocktails, but not a lot of people use it. There's not a lot of tonic water fans and things like that that you would normally do. So when we talk about going back to Ireland and doing the botanicals and things like that, when you think about Ireland, you don't think about gin, or at least I don't think about gin. Nah, what gave you yeah. guys this idea to go, you know what? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm completely with you. The last thing I thought of in Ireland was gin. Gin is traditionally a British drink. Uh, not, not a popular group of people in the part of Ireland where the castle is. Um, you know? uh, but believe it or not, um, you know, one of the things we do at the castle uh, is we do these massive Irish weddings. And the most popular thing at every Irish wedding now is a, a gin cart where they're coming around making specifically gin cocktails. I, I don't know why it became so popular. I, I don't care for gin on a personal level. Uh, bad experiences with it, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I, I see people, they love it. And the botanical aspect, we, we literally go out into the garden on the, uh, uh, on the grounds of the castle and harvest a bunch of these botanicals and send them off to tealings and they get infused. Uh, gin can be done quicker, so that there's a advantage to, to producing gin versus uh, your darker spirits. Um, I'm probably the world's worst brand ambassador for Kennedy Castle gin, not because it's Kennedy Castle, but because it's gin. I, I'm not a big gin guy, but uh, it, it's different. It's it's got that fruit infusion in it. Um, try it. That's all I can say. I, I, there, there's no way I'm ever going to drink it and like it just because who I am. Uh, but, um, you know, it's weird. Uh, I'm totally going to take a right turn here. The, the thing I thought we'd be making before we made gin was vodka. Vodka's potato based. What's Ireland famous for? Potatoes. Absolutely. But nobody's making Irish vodka. We're talking about doing that now. I don't know if we'll do it or not. Um, that That's probably, uh, other than whiskey, that's probably my favorite is vodka. So, and, and to add on top of that, I don't like grain vodka. I like potato vodka. You can do a nice potato vodka with some uh, with some infusions, like uh, you know the buffalo grass stuff that the Polish guys drink. Um, so I, we're, we're we're looking into that. Um, I don't. I'm soft selling the gin, and I don't mean to. That's a, a terrible business. Well, do, I think that you're like, showing all the different possibilities, and and with the vodka, I think that turnaround time is going to be like non-existent. I mean, it's going to be a quick turnaround. You can make it in prison bathroom, right? I think. Well, I, I don't know if that's the way you should sell your vodka coming out. Uh, I don't know if you should market it that way. I think it'll be a little more classy, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Vodka, it, well, they say when you make vodka, vodka is vodka is vodka. It's all in what they do by the distilling of it, what they add to it and things like that. But But to make the vodka and turn it around, it's pretty much the same no matter where you go. Right. So, not to soft sell these, I want to push them a little more. The 10-year age Irish whiskey, $55.99 a bottle. Yep. The cider cast finish is $49.99 a bottle. The dapper blend is $42.99 a bottle. I don't have a price on the gin. I looked around. And, I, and I'm not prepared to tell you what that is, but I will okay. shoot that to you if you can post it. I'll, I'll add that in there. So if you guys want these in the United States, you can order them. Uh, you can also get them in Ireland. Uh, and then there is one place in Florida that you can get them. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But if you want to order them online here, 
It's Kennedy Castle Spirits. That's K I N N I T T Y C A S T L E Spirits, S P I R I T S dot com. Kennedy Castle Spirits dot com. You can go on there, you can order any of these blends. Uh, and what you're saying is about two weeks right now, but I think with this new implementation, it'll be a lot faster. Yeah, we're getting ready to have, uh, we, we're changing our distribution plan. We're going to have global distribution. We have several states and Ireland now and the UK, uh, but those are kind of federated. We're going with a, a more consolidated plan. Uh, several bars up in the New England area are carrying it now. Um, and we'll, we'll be in... Uh, any state that you can buy it in now online, we should be in bars and liquor stores in that those states soon. Um, and if not, ask your bartender, bar manager to start carrying it and uh, they can get it pretty easily at their wholesale price and you can buy it by the glass. So let's talk about the origins. Kennedy Castle. Uh, now, the way it's described as a place where mythology is shrouded, a place where paganism and Christianity meet. There was a castle that was destroyed, restored, reinvented many times in its long life. If you look in the background of this picture, that's it right there with the whiskey in front of it. When I started looking this up, I don't know why you didn't tell me this whenever we first started talking to each other. This place has, one, a humongous history, and number two, it's like one of the most haunted castles in the whole world. Like, everybody that haunts or does those paranormal shows has gone here. I don't know why you didn't lead with that, Brian. Again, this, the, the, the uh, quiet professional humble guy in me, there's literally no humble way to say, let me tell you about my castle in Ireland. But, but having said that, let me tell you about my castle in Ireland. Now, so, <laughs> now that I hear you say that, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, and especially when you're trying to sell somebody on a product for your defense contracting business, they're like, I don't know what we're paying you, but you bought a castle. And when they hear the story, then they realize, well, we're probably not paying you enough. So yeah, the Kennedy Castle is a historic castle uh, built in 1208 uh, for the first time, built in 1208. It's part of the Carroll, uh, O'Carroll Castle. Uh, Ireland was the most castellated country in Europe. You know, the British went over there and uh, they had to build castles and fortifications in order to control the, the country. The O'Carroll family is a fascinating uh, history because they were Catholic and they at some point were run out of the country and they essentially settled Maryland. Um, one of the Carols uh, founded the uh, Jesuit, it was the first Jesuit bishop in America, founded Georgetown University. Uh, the other one signed the Declaration of Independence and gave away his farmland in Maryland, which became Washington, D.C., and they sing about that in Hamilton now. So uh, this was originally an, an O'Carroll estate. Uh, we uh, sit in the middle of the Sleeve Bloom Mountains. If you, you closed your eyes and put your finger in the middle of Ireland, you would probably hit the castle. It is dead center of the teddy bear of Ireland. Um, 37 bedrooms. Um, it was multi-purposed at the, uh, after the Irish Civil War. It uh, was taken over by the Irish government as a uh, forestry department. So it, it sits uh, adjacent to a national park, which is uh, one of the most forested areas in Ireland, which is the second least forested country in Europe. Uh, so it's actually in a very pretty uh, wooded section uh, of Ireland. Again, 37 bedrooms, uh, a 200 person capacity wedding hall, three bars, four star restaurant. Um, 
we were uh, very, very fortunate. One of the coolest things I've ever been able to do in my benevolent uh, life is we dedicated the best room in the castle to Lieutenant Mike Murphy, the Medal of Honor recipient. Um, his family came over. We had a, a two-day uh, party and uh, presented Mrs. Murphy with the key to the room. Um, she was very touched by that. Now when folks go over and stay at the castle, if they stay in the Mike Murphy room, they get to read not only Mike's story, but the entire story of Irish-American uh, Medal of Honor recipients, which, believe it or not, um, more than 50% of all Medal of Honor recipients are Irish or are of Irish-American descent, more than any other ethnic demographic. So pretty amazing history of sacrifice that uh, the castle gets to uh, to highlight and be a place to visit for, for Americans coming over there. Inside there, you, you talked about having 36 different rooms. Now, there's four different kinds of rooms in there. Uh, Abbey yeah. Court rooms, uh, baronial uh, rooms, state rooms, and castle suites. So can you break down why you would use each room or how you would kind of plan your trip to go if people haven't been over there, have never stayed in a castle? What's the different ideas behind the rooms and, and what should people look for whenever they're uh, doing that? Yeah, well, if, you, if you go to Ireland, uh, and everyone should go, uh, it's one of the few places left on the planet that they really love the American accent. Uh, the, the Ireland's greatest treasure is its people. They're warm. It'll, it's fun. Um, if you go, stay in a castle at least one night somewhere. Please stay in ours. Um, uh, we're centrally located. We're very close to Shane Lowry's home golf course. We're close to uh, two of the premier whiskey distilleries in Ireland, and we're going to have our own whiskey experience at the castle. So there's lots to do to hub and spoke out of the castle uh, for at least one or two days of your, your week or 10 day trip to Ireland, whatever you choose to do. And we'll certainly, if you mentioned the podcast, we'll make sure our, our team over there, um, takes care of you. We'll figure out how to do that more formally. Um, those, those are levels of rooms. Um, it, the best way to think about it is most places in Ireland are giant air, uh, giant B and B's, right? So you're paying for a room, you're paying for breakfast. Uh, unlike most American places, the best restaurants in Ireland are associated with the hotel. So we are kind of one-stop shop and you got a great restaurant. As I said, we have the entire dungeon of this place is a bar and we've got live music there. And so how cool is that to drink whiskey and beer in a, in a dungeon bar in Ireland that's haunted? Um, so if, you know, I, I've taken my family over there, I've taken friends over there. And I say, look, if you want a once in a lifetime, you're only gonna be there one night stay in one of the castle suites. They're, they're massive. We've all stayed in rooms that are smaller than some of the bathrooms in those suites. Um, and then put your kids and your grandkids back out in the, uh, the Abbey court, <laughs> you know, it's, they're beautiful. They're a little smaller. Um, but they're, they're, I mean, they're spacious. I mean, most of the beds are, are double, double Kings attached together under a giant canopy. I mean, it's, it's a really, fascinating and fantastic place and there's lots to do there horseback riding skeet shooting as i said close to golf and it's a geographic anomaly you're two hours from everywhere you know so it's a great great place well in talking about that you're repurposing the coach house and stables behind the castle into a tasting room and a whiskey bonding facility it's called the Kennedy Castle Whiskey Experience, and it'll open, I guess, later on in this year, correct? 
It's probably delayed. Ireland is lagging everyone in uh, COVID bounce back. So we're, we're certainly feeling the uh, repercussions of that. We were very fortunate to get some historic grants from the Irish government. So once things return to normal, we'll begin construction on that whiskey experience in the area that you talked about. Uh, we will also be uh, aging some of our whiskey on site. Um, we will have a cask program at some point where you can buy a cask of whiskey and you can come over to Ireland and see it aging in the castle. And we'll all drink from it and see how it tasted various ages and things like that. So uh, that's all. We're repurposing that uh, very soon. Um, we are also adjacent to the trailhead for the longest contiguous mountain bike path in Europe. And it all starts at Kennedy Castle. We have bike rental on the facility. So go out and get a little PT in, mountain bike, come back and drink whiskey with a ghost. How bad can it be? I think once again, and, and I'm picking up this uh, with you, uh, when you talk about the food and dining, you sold that one a little short too, Brian. There's a lot going on there. I mean, you have three different, you have the library bar, you have the dungeon bar, you have the restaurant, and and forgive me, I'm going to have to have you call it what it is because I, I cannot pronounce it, so... The restaurant, the Slee Dalla. Okay, I just uh, wanted to make sure. I didn't want to say it wrong, so... Which means uh, uh, Central Road, I think, is Central, because uh, all the roads lead to Dublin. There is the different Slees. Slee is road. So, um, no, it's, it's, it's a wonder. We have a great chef. We've, we've won awards every year uh, for the restaurant there. Um, of course, we have, I think we have a wonderful menu. Ireland is, is it's a, it's a surprise. It's a very great food destination. If you go anywhere in Ireland, I mean, the seafood is fantastic. The, the fresh game. Uh, there are more cows and sheep in Ireland than there are people. So you're getting good, fresh lamb and, and steaks that will just melt in your mouth. Um, and so we do that very well. But the beauty of the castle with only 37 rooms, you know, smaller population staying there, you can order off the menu. You know, you can say, hey, I'm, can you do this for me? And our staff will do it. They're, it's fantastic. Uh, um, a great destination place for weddings, uh, great destination place for, you know, family reunions. If you're out there looking for, a lot of people come there for, uh, they're doing genealogy research and you're bringing over a bunch of folks, you know, from, from the States. You don't want to go overwhelm your the cousins you never met um, out in Tipperary. So, you know, stay at the castle and then drive down there to meet them, those kinds of things. Uh, it, I couldn't be happier. Again, that's a whole other podcast, a whole other story about how some Army lieutenant colonel ends up owning a castle in Ireland. But uh, like most good Irish stories, it, it begins and ends in a bar uh, with, a, with a bunch of whiskey. So. Well, just if people want to look into it or to book a stay, it's going to be Kennedy Castle Hotel, just like we said, Kennedy Castle on the first one, uh, .com. Uh, so KennedyCastleHotel.com. It's 90 minutes from Dublin, uh, Limerick and Galway, and it's two hours from Cork. So like right in the center. Everything that you want to do is there. They have bike rentals. They are starting the whiskey tasting experience. There's three different restaurants and bars inside. There's forestry. There's just nature that you can take in there and walk around and just see the different types of rooms and experience the the haunted castle feeling because I'm sure it's 
fed onto a lot. The last part that I want to talk to you about, people don't know, but you're also uh, involved with a bar in Florida. And so you guys have something coming up for it, and I want to talk about it. It's going to tie into pretty much everything we've talked about uh, tonight, military, whiskey, fellowship, family, all that kind of stuff. So I want to talk about this coming up real quick, and um, I just want you to kind of fill everyone in on it. It's the Special Operations Warrior Whiskey Tasting, uh, Thursday, September 23rd, 2021, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Four Green Fields, uh, Curtis Hickson Park, Tampa, Florida. So if you would, fill them in. Yeah, so uh, very short background. Four Green Fields is, is uh, every year rated as one of the top 10 Irish pubs in America. It's a great bar. Uh, I've been fortunate to be brought into the uh, ownership group of it. Um, and we are going to host this Special Ops Warrior Whiskey Night in support of the Night Stalker Foundation. So the Night Stalker Foundation, first off, is a uh, 5013C nonprofit organization that exists to take care of the needs of our, our night stalkers where those needs can't be met by government agencies or other benevolent organizations. We're very careful not to commit benevolent fratricide. Um, you know, we, we partner with the Warrior Foundation and, and, and all those. And I would say the takeaway would be that there's a lot of charities that take care of the dead. Um, the NSF takes care of the living guys, the legacy guys who will be around for some time. And, and uh, it's a relatively new uh, nonprofit uh, that grew out of that need for the Night Stalker uh, community. So we're going to have this uh, initial introduction of the NSF to the Tampa and wider community. So you can travel in for it if you want. Um, and the idea is we're going to have flights of whiskey. All the whiskeys will be whiskeys that are made or distilled or managed by special operations veterans. Uh, the good folks at Horse Soldier Whiskey are going to participate. Um, I know uh, Hooten Young, Norm Hooten, a uh, former Delta operator and friend, is going to participate. Uh, and there's a couple others that were committed last year. COVID happened and I haven't gone back to them uh, this year for their, their commitment, but uh, Three Rangers is making whiskey, whether they participate or not, you know, great outfit. Um, their foundation run by a uh, Ranger Sergeant Major. Um, uh, Steamboat Springs whiskey, which is run by a SEAL. Uh, you know, so the idea will be that as each of those whiskeys are presented, we'll talk about the whiskey uh, they will talk about their whiskey, but equally important, they will talk about the community. What does the what does the 160th do for the SEALs? What does the 160th do for um, the Special Forces guys? What does the 160th do for the Rangers? So on and so forth. I've been to too many of these parties where we all sit up and talk about how great we are. Uh, we, I said, well, I'm going to do one where you guys tell us how great we are. Um, to Norm's credit, when I asked him, would he participate and say something nice about what the unit means to him? And, and I'll, I'll clean up the language a little bit, but he goes, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for you guys. So I said, well, we'll say that. That's a pretty good endorsement, you know? Um, 
So it'll be a fun night. We'll we'll have some cigars. We'll have. Uh, I was whiskey. just about to say. I'm guessing Norm's going to bring some of his cigars too. Norm's going to bring some of his cigars, which are fantastic. I'll put a plug in. Uh, got a box of them up here at the cabin that I've been uh, celebrating the Lightning's Stanley Cup with. Um, the good folks from Horse Soldiers are going to pair with us. We're in Tampa at Cigar City, USA. We'll have some other cigar pairings. There'll be some silent auctions. The the main purpose is to raise awareness for the Night Stalker Foundation, and ultimately to generate long-term commitment to sponsoring this particular benevolent organization. What I think we've all found after 9-11 and the GWAT is, you know, the first President Bush's thousand points of light have finally come true. And everybody, there's a lot of people out there doing great things, but there's a huge risk of benevolent fratricide. And, and we don't want to cause that. So we're looking for folks who want to hear this story and kind of pick this charity as the one that they want to get behind. Um, and I, I know as a small business owner, um, you got to make choices about where you donate your money to. This is a fantastic organization uh, serving a fantastic community and uh, shoot me an email and support me in any way you can support the organization in any way you can my event in any way you can. So let me ask you, as we kind of wrap this up, is there anything else that you want to plug tonight? Anything else that you have going on? Cause I asked that because it seems at every turn you got something cooking. So yeah, I, I, I'm trying to simplify my life and I see that it's not going that way. Uh, no, I would just, I, I think DJ, I think the one thing I would, say to who I think is a lot of your audience. When we talked the first time, you talked about um, trying to help guys understand that there is life after serving in the military or first responders. Um, and, and there's different paths, right? You don't have to step out of uniform into the GS job or to the Gates, Guards and Gun thing, which I suppose is drawing down significantly now. Um, and I would tell you, it's a great big world out there. Jump in. There are a lot of those organizations that have uh, st stood up to help with transition now. Um, you, Everyone should be looking into them. Google it, contact me. I'm sure you, you're a resource as well. People like myself who've gone through the transition, um, you know, I've hired, I had 160 people when I left the company, but I've hired, you know, two or 300 people, I guess, in my day. I know what it takes to transition and nothing would make me happier than to help guys in that endeavor. And, I, and I'm one of thousands of retirees who want to do that. So if you're thinking about transitioning, you don't know what you're gonna do, you're struggling, you're looking for a sense of purpose, a sense of self, a sense of tribe, you're not alone, reach out, reach out through uh, services like DJ provides uh, and uh, you're still part of the community, we wanna help. And uh, you do us a great honor when you ask for help. And I hope people will do that. Well, talking about a great honor, Brian, it was so fantastic to meet you. It was such an honor for everything that you've done, everything that you're still doing. Guys, if you want to find more of Brian, and you absolutely should, let's go back over the websites, uh, a couple of them. Uh, you're going to get uh, Kennedy Castle Hotel. That's Kennedy spelled K-I-N-N-I-T-T-Y, castlehotel.com. And then if you want the alcohol, Kennedy Castle Spirits, K-I-N-N-I-T-T-Y, castlespirits.com. Uh, you can also take part in the whiskey tasting that's going on uh, at the fundraiser down in Florida. 
hopefully soon there'll be cigars that are involved with you guys and, and some more alcohol, possibly a potato vodka. <laughs> Brian, thanks for everything you've done. Thanks for so much for being on here. If you want to find him, I gave you all the links. We'll put them down in the show notes. If you want more of me, you can catch me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. You can catch me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can catch me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, you come here every week because the best stories are true, and we give them to you. That's Brian. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. We'll see you later. <laughs>